Have you ever seen some idiot the crag free soloing and wondered to yourself, just how in the hell did that idiot decide this was a good idea? Like seriously, what life choices went wrong in his life to bring him to this horrible, horrible place? Well, you're in the right place, my friend, because this idiot is about to tell you exactly what decisions brought him to that horrible, horrible place. Today's episode of The Process is called The Progress, because everybody starts somewhere. So throw your rope in the closet where it belongs, and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. The Progress is about to begin. So here's the deal. I know it seems like I've been free soloing for basically the entirety of my life by, you know, I was just sprouted six foot tall from the womb free soloing. Or at least that's probably how it looks on Instagram, maybe. You know, Instagram, sunshine, rosy, fake as hell. Um, but the truth is, everybody starts somewhere. And for me, I was flailing around on a 5'8 at my university climbing gym. Now, mind you, you could probably climb that in high heels. But that's where I began, and that's what started the next 12 years of my life. Everything else simply arose logically from that moment. At least logically to me. About six months of work put me at top roping 5'10", and I entered the intermediate category at the annual University of Houston climbing competition. And that's where it all began. Because I won big... <laughs> Not because I was good, mind you. They pulled my name out of the hat for a rope bag during the raffle, and <laughs> everybody got a good laugh because they knew damn well that I didn't own a rope. I'd only been at this for six months. And the punchline? The final raffle was going to be an actual rope. That's what I'd been hoping to win. But, uh, well, you only got one raffle ticket. So as everyone held their breath in anticipation while the MC dug around the hat to pull out a name. And the winner of the rope is... Austin Howell! Holy crap! Oh my god, I was so stoked. Oh, but how? How in the fuck? I mean, they pulled the raffle tickets and I was out. Right? Turns out, they were uh, interested in fairness. Since all the prizes were relatively minor except for that one, if you'd won a minor prize, they threw your name back in the hat so that everybody would have a fair chance of winning the rope. <laughs> Joke's on you guys now. I've got a rope bag and a rope. I'm ready to fucking roll. From there, I bought two quick draws and a little bit of webbing. And I was off to the races. So that's what started it all. If you got a rope, you gotta learn to use it. So I enrolled in the lead climbing class at the, uh, the very next, next week. Next stop, Enchanted Rock. We were literally reading John Long's book, Climbing Anchors, in the car at 90 miles an hour on the way to the crag. 30 feet of webbing, a couple lockers, and two quick draws. We made it work. 
once we got to E-Rock, we started rigging our top rope anchors and stuff like that. And um, one sketchy moment happened. We didn't have any trad gear. We weren't lead climbing. We didn't know anything. We were so dumb that we didn't know the difference between our ass and a hole in the ground. Let alone a good anchor from a bad one. Well, we also didn't know the difference between a good idea and a bad one. <laughs> they say two things you need if you're going to succeed in the vertical are good experience and good judgment. Unfortunately, the only way to develop good experience is through poor judgment. <laughs> Live and learn, right? So, there was this one route called Cave Crack that we wanted to climb. It was only 5.6. We didn't know how to get to the top to rig an anchor. But hey, it's only 5.6. How bad could it be? So I thought I'd solo up the thing. I'd heard that was something people do. And it's only 5.6, and it's perfect hand jams. I can slaughter hand jams all day. No big deal, right? So I coiled the rope on my back with the webbing and everything else and started soloing up the crack. Bomber hand jams led to... There was this stone that capped it in a way that blocked off... It wasn't so much a roof, a roof, but you just had to step around this ca uh, this cave. So you're in a cave, and there's like a hole opening up where you climb around the corner and get out of it. So I got up to there, and from the ground in my with the grandeur of delusion, I thought there would be a big enough hole to wiggle through where I could just crawl through that slot while jamming the crack. Such was not to be the case. It narrowed off too much, so you had to step across the void to the left to get around the roof. I sat there contemplating life. I reached around the roof, searching for, surely there must be a hole. This is only 5-6. <laughs> only. That word usually precedes adventure <laughs> this is only this is only whatever um, they say it's not an adventure if everything goes to plan right so that's that's all this was adventure yeah we'll we'll stick with that <laughs> and so as I'm sitting there on this uh, route reaching around the corner I can't find it I can't find it so what do I do oh my god I've got webbing and there's a chalk stone there's a rock wedged in the crack way back up in there. If I just lasso that chalk stone, I'm golden. So I unballed my webbing as I was standing on this little, there was a pod where the crack opened up and I could just kind of stand on my feet, real casual like. So I stood in that pod while my feet progressively pained more and more and more. And I threw that piece of webbing. I used a carabiner to weight it. This chalk stone was just about 12 inches too far back in the crack for me to reach. So I threw my webbing in there and it went past and it drooped down. 
but the carabiner didn't swing back where I could reach it. Again, missed the rock entirely. Again, it hit it, but not much more. Again, the carabiner went around, and it just, it hit my hand, but not in a way that I could grab it, like it was taunting me. At the time, I didn't really know how to down climb. Only way I could figure out was up. So I came pretty close to freaking out. I mean, I was pretty much only, like, completely freaking out. That's all. <laughs> Didn't help me, but it was unavoidable. Wow. Through that, I just kept throwing that lasso, hoping it would stick. And then, you know, I kept throwing it, and it missed, and I would retrieve it. Throwing it, and it would miss, and I would retrieve it. And then I threw it, and the carabiner wedged itself between the rock and the wall of the crack, and I couldn't retrieve it. <sighs> Fucker was stuck, and I couldn't get it back. That was my only lifeline to rectify this horrible situation that I had created for myself. And it was stuck, and I couldn't get it back, and it stuck, and I can't get it back. It's stuck. It's stuck. If it's stuck... That means it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. That means I can yank on it. So I gave it a good sharp tug, and I knew that some anchors were only good for a downward pull. Thanks, John Long. I at least picked up that lesson in the sacred art of not killing yourself, even if I didn't pick up any more. <laughs> and I gave it a good hard pull. Used it as my handhold while I reached around the crack, or around that roof, rather. And as soon as I reached around, boom, there it was. Big fucking jug. I must have been pawing all around it without actually sticking the thing. So then I grabbed the jug, topped out, and it was no big deal. I lassoed the uh, boulder up there and set our top rope. Great friggin' idiot. What in the hell? So, uh, cave crack. 5-6-A-5. I've since come back and soloed the slab to the left of the route, where you don't even get the crack. But back then, I didn't have the skills or the ability to control such movement, so I did the only thing I could. You gotta watch out. That's, um... That's one manifestation of the ego, where you think... Oh yeah, clearly I've got this. It is so far below my ability that I don't need a backup plan. Hubris. That's more dangerous than a shitty anchor.
So the next stop on my progression was multi-pitch. E-Rock has these long bolted slabs, and one of them goes 300 feet to the top at only 5.5. There's <laughs> that word again, only. Y'all noticing a pattern here? Because I am. <laughs> Hindsight's 2020. All right. Turns out the third pitch would be the psychological crux, even though it couldn't have been any harder than 5-2. It was an anchor-to-anchor runout with no gear, 50 feet completely unprotected, contemplating a fall straight onto the anchor. I tiptoed and frighted my way up through the water groove, and my extreme hesitation was obvious. My climbing partners reminded me, just remember, man, you can back off and we can repel. No big deal. <laughs> Once again, I wasn't too knowledgeable about down climbing. Something about their reminder that I could bail galvanized my younger, stupider self because I knew the hesitation I was feeling was absurd. I knew that if I climbed this thing a hundred times, I would never fall. But the notion of what would happen paralyzed me. So instead, I just focused on how bloody fucking easy this thing was. I clawed myself up to the next anchor. And I whooped and hollered with joy. For perspective, in later years, I was able to walk up that pitch hands-free. floated up from the base of Sweat, 5-6, one of the most popular trad routes for learning the craft in the entirety of Texas. As Eric Fisher hollered up, Hey man, they were probably alright for a downward pull. All the nuts I'd placed in the upper third of the pitch ripped out after I'd reached the anchor and put tension on the rope to lower off. Maybe they were good for a downward pull. But as soon as the rope tugs sideways... <laughs> uh, yeah. They pulled about as fast as an anchor made out of fishing string. Later that day, he hollers up at me. Oh yeah, man. I forgot to mention. On trad, you're not really supposed to fall. As my forearms were pumping over the bulge on grass crack, a 510A, stemming onto the adjacent wall is completely verboten. It's off route. So at this point, I stemmed and yelled, TAKE! I'd taken five consecutive whippers onto a number five stopper, 15 feet off the ground, while it was my only piece of protection, and I was trying to figure out the balancing move through those fingery cracks while blood from my fingers slicked up the jams. Having taken five falls, and then being reminded that falling was a bad thing, I lost it. 
I wasn't born with mind control. But I got here as fast as I could. At this point, I'd kind of run into a stop with regards to progression outdoors. I knew if I was going to progress any harder outdoors, I had to gnar up and hit the gym. So I did. And I pushed my way up and eventually sent my first 512 inside the gym. And uh, I was pushing on up towards a plastic 512C when my belayer let go of the rope and dropped me 35 feet to the deck. I fractured two vertebrae, T11 and 12, spent four months in a back brace. The only thing I had to keep me going was Tommy Caldwell videos and a pair of Grip Masters. So I'd sit there on the couch in the house, watch those Tommy Caldwell videos, and get stoked. I knew when I got out of there, there were two things I needed to be able to do. I needed to be able to walk so I could return to classes, and I needed to be able to climb. So after watching a Tommy Caldwell video and getting sufficiently stoked, I'd walk around the house, squeezing those grip masters, until I completely pumped out. Then I'd go sit on the couch, watch more Tommy, and get fired up again. <laughs> I squeezed those fucking grip masters so much that I actually got sore. You ever heard of somebody getting sore in the forearm off of a grip master? Now you have. So I came out of the healing process and got back into the climbing gym. The staff at the university was kind enough to leave the route I fell off of up for me. They figured I might want to get my revenge send. And I did. About a month after I came back. Those grip masters actually did something for me. Most ironic part? The route was named Final Destination. <laughs> Couldn't be any more appropriate if we tried. And about... At the one... One year mark. After I'd uh, fallen off of that thing and gotten smashed up. I sent my hardest route ever. There was a route that was natural texture only on our climbing wall that went at 513B. Bravo. Bulletproof roof. And I actually led the thing. I was the first person to lead it. Sure, it's plastic. But that felt pretty damn good. And at that point, I began pushing back out onto the slabs again, progressing my way at Enchanted Rock.
I sat there, about 20 feet above my bolt, realizing there just really weren't a lot of options for holds up here. This bald slab didn't have much more than dime edges, and every now and then you'd find a nickel edge and say, Sweet! I'm fucking great now! The edge in front of me wasn't much more than a potato chip, so I fell back to logic to escape my predicament. Alright. Someone's climbed this before. That's how I know it's a route, and it's in the guidebook. It's established. Five feet from here... There's an obvious hold. The only thing between here and there is that bob-damned potato chip to stand on. I looked 20 feet down at my last bolt and did the math. After falling 20 feet, there'd be 20 feet of slack out, meaning 20 more feet of falling. Then the slack that my belayer had so I would have freedom of movement, that'd mean another 5 to 10 feet, and then stretch. There's 70 feet of rope out in the system, so let's assume 20% stretch for safety margin. That means 14 feet. 20, 20, 10, and 14. That's 64 feet. I'm only 70 feet off the deck. 64 foot fall. That's coming in hot. Good thing Jeremy wore his running shoes. He'd need them to stop this asteroid from forming a crater. A fall like this could wipe out the dinosaurs. And that's when it hit me. While there might be times in life where it's perfectly reasonable to freak out, I have yet to find one where it's productive. Freaking out doesn't ever help you. But, if you catch yourself freaking out, don't freak out about it. There's nothing worse than freaking out about freaking out. So I sat there and I thought about it. Given that the only thing between that hold and me is this fucking potato chip. Given that someone has sent this route before me. That means they had to have used that thing. They had to have put their foot on it and it must have held their weight in defiance of the laws of physics and good sense. So when I put my weight on this foothold, it's going to... It held! I clipped the bolt and yelled, I'm going to live! Gravitron, 511D, X. It has four bolts in the space of 150 feet.
Originally, I went to Enchanted Rock and I was drawn to it because I like being up there, wherever up there happens to be. Much to the dismay of my mother who continually found me 40 or 60 feet up the nearest tree. Neighborhood kids kids would play hide-and-go-seek, and pretty quickly I realized that nobody ever looks up. And if they did, they'd realize it wasn't worth the effort. I sat up there for three rounds and they never spotted me. And that got a bit boring, understandably. So I picked pine cones out of the branches and threw them. I nailed one of the neighborhood kids right on the head and they still didn't figure out someone was lurking above. Maybe they thought it was tree sprites. Hmm. Fucker deserved it anyway. He'd whoop my ass one too many times at Magic the Gathering. This was my only recourse. For revenge. Enchanted Rock was up there. The tallest thing reasonably accessible in Texas, especially considering that we were based in Houston. Reimer's Ranch was rad and all if you like clipping bolts and saying take on the regular, but it's about 50 feet tall, at the tallest. We've got that in the University Rec Center. Enchanted Rock, as previously mentioned, tops out at 300 feet for the tallest lines, and everything in the park has a view. There's something vaguely disappointing about topping out on a rock climb only to wind up eyeball level with the treetops behind you. That's why I like Devil's Lake so much. Every route is just fucking gorgeous. It's the sort of aestheticism you just don't get many places. Devil's Lake is my Midwestern E-Rock. But I digress, as per usual. But I reckon that's part of why y'all come here. Or at least that y'all come to expect it at this point. So that's my thing. I like being up there. When I go visit a new crag, first thing I do is find the easiest way up the tallest thing. Sure, 512 Narnar is a lot of fun, and it makes me feel good about myself. But when I top out on a 512, I look over. You know, that thing's a lot taller. (laughs) only thing better than climbing is more climbing and there's nothing more empowering than scampering to the top of something massive Enchanted Rock has the best 510 cracks on earth the 511s are horrifically run out slabs as mentioned previously but typically they won't kill or maim you they just inspire a change of pants the 512s will kill you At least the trad ones. And if you're not trad climbing, what the fuck were you even doing? In our minds at the time, El Capitan was the ultimate goal for all climbing endeavors. It's not exactly a bolt ladder. Except for the places where they have bolt ladders, but we didn't know those were a thing at the time. So we scaled back and worked mileage on those 510 cracks to see how much we could do in a day. Maybe we could rack up enough pitches to equate the work of a day on the big stone. The reality was maybe not. We'd only get four or five pitches in a day. After those run-out slabs, contemplating life on potato chips 20 feet above my last bolt, jamming cracks felt like returning home. Every hand jam is like an anchor. And one day, I just snapped. 
I couldn't not solo these climbs. Suddenly, it was just the most obvious thing in the universe, like, oh yeah, soloing. Why the fuck wouldn't I do that? The next weekend, I soloed 32 routes in two days. That's a workload worthy of Yosemite. A couple weekends later, I soloed Fear of Flying, a route that's burned into the ethos of Sentex climbing due to the bold nature of its first ascent. It's the king line of Texas, and I soloed it twice that day. All right, all right, all right. I don't know how you folks are doing, but right about now, I'm getting pretty fucking tired of hearing my own guitar. So uh, I think it's time that we take a quick break here for some good old-fashioned rock! with a job. That's right. Climbing cell towers. Yeah. Rock climber with a job. Climbing. Back to stereotype. It took me to Atlanta. And I began climbing sandstone in the southeast. The region is not exactly known for its crack climbing. Except for Tennessee Wall, mind you, which is a regional oddity. So I was forced onto the faces and out of my comfort zone. My first time at Sand Rock, Alabama saw maybe 10 or 15 on-site solos. Finishing with the ultra-classic, comfortably numb, 5.9 plus, right at the end of the day. Again, I worked up the grades into the 5.10s and eventually found myself soloing 5.11. On one particular day, I climbed Dreamscape 511 CD for my warm-up, roped up, mind you, and as I was doing that, I just realized, holy shit, I'm going to solo Dreamscape. How fucking cool is that? It was just so obvious, like, how could I not solo this thing? I had it wired. I mean, I could walk up and warm up on that thing while holding a conversation with my belayer, with my shoes untied. Ultimately, I've soloed it three times now, in total. On that day, I had the weird head fuck of realizing that I'd been soloing laps on 5.11s that my friends couldn't even send. Holy shit, that was weird. I've always thought of myself as a steaming pile of mediocrity, but... I couldn't deny that something special was going on. How many folks solo 5.11 with regularity? 
Mm, I'd say fewer than the number who climb 513 with regularity. Maybe I've got a gift for this sort of thing. Maybe it would be a sin against the universe to squander this gift once it's been given. Maybe I ought to take this thing and run with it. Just see how far it'll go. I mean, I'm constitutionally incapable of considering myself to be special in any way. But, if you're doing laps on your friend's projects without a rope, you'd have to be one hell of an asshole to sit there and tell him, oh, you know, I'm not really that good at climbing. That'd just be shitting all over their accomplishments. And that, that'd be a dick move. course of the next year, I went on to on-site solo a few 5.11s, and at that point, I felt like I was pretty tapped out for low-hanging fruit in terms of single pitch. For me to climb harder solos, I would need to be able to climb harder, and that would take, like, you know, actual work? Up there, steep and secure. That's Linville Gorge. The first time I visited this place, I just knew that I was going to do bad things here. My first route took a while due to the lack of efficiency in uh, my systems, and because we climbed as a party of three, it was Paradise Alley, 5.8+. Plus. I came back later to solo that route, and I on-site soloed 5.9s, and later I roped up on a 10B roof called Built to Tilt. Roped up on Pinball Wizard... 5.11, then on-site soloed a couple 5.10s. On Pinball Wizard, that 5.11, we had a hell of a time cleaning my gear afterward. So we pulled the rope and left a couple of cams in the wall. Hmm. I'm a sport utility soloist. Being an idiot sometimes comes in uh, advantageous. I down-climbed an adjacent route and then soloed Pinball Wizard while pulling the cams out and retrieving them. That felt pretty good. Eventually my days went longer and longer and longer and bigger and bigger and bigger until I up and soloed a vertical mile in just ten and a half hours. More on that in our next episode. Or maybe a future episode. We'll see how the timing comes out. Thank you.
story, unfortunately, is about injuries. Again. Mm. When I was out traveling for work, the first one hit me. I was out, I actually got to go back to Syntex for work purposes. And on one particular weekend, I snuck off to Enchanted Rock. Went down there and figured I was a hot shot with run-out climbs. And I got on Shocker 12A RX. Well, to keep my kit light for travel, I'd packed link cams. Turns out, those inner steel lobes don't get very good purchase on granite. They're not exactly the panic piece they're advertised as in such a situation, as they're more likely to pull than hold. I whipped out of that crack, because honestly, I just hadn't prepared properly. And when I fell, my there were only two pieces of gear in the route. It's run out. It's scary. Um... From about maybe 25 feet up, I fell, and my bottom rope, near my bottom cam, excuse me, caught me when I was six inches off the ground. When my ass was six inches off the ground. Which saved my spine, but it was too late for my ankles. I spent the week hobbling on crutches. The next month, really. And from there, I went to Waco Tanks, where I actually sent my first V6 and V7. <laughs> Weird time. Basically, I sought out low balls, and when I fell, I aimed for my ass instead of my feet. Risk calculation. Not just for soloing. Well, in this time, I'd been getting stronger, managed to send 513, and um, I was feeling pretty fit. So we made a bid for El Capitan. This was maybe a year later. And on that bid for El Capitan, I got into a pickle on the uh, second pitch of the nose. Uh, Guidebook kind of disregards the first pitch on Super Topo, and I thought that I was climbing appropriately. Um, Turns out I passed the anchoring position for the second pitch, and I had to do some fucked up shenanigans to get back down. I left some pieces in the wall to uh, help me get up, and we'd we'd been waiting for a four-day window to climb. Actually, a five-day window. It had been raining like fuck. We wanted a day for it to dry off. And then four days for the ascent. We figured we could probably climb it in three days. But as per soloist protocol, probably isn't good enough. I didn't want to rely on probably. So, we only got a four-day window. We had to go up while it was still mildly moist. Not awesome, not optimal. So we launched into it, and after lowering off the second pitch, I turned around to fire it again, 
this time correctly. And when I did, we don't exactly know what happened. But I was out of the sight of my belayer around the corner. We had neglected to have the good sense to move the belay. So while I was French freeing, I figured it was safer to uh, let my gear hold my weight rather than trusting my fingers in the slicked up pods that had been touched by the rain. I was using link cams as my handholds and the venerable C4 Camelot, the offset version, for my fall protection. Well, while I was climbing, one of those link cams must have blown on me. Again. And I fell roughly 20 feet head first into the ledge atop the pine line. I've got a little bit of memory loss. That's why we don't know exactly what went wrong. The force of the concussion kind of uh, hit the reset button on my brain. I remember thinking, Oh boy, we've got a good plan. This is going to be so much fun and safe. And the next thing I recollect was some stranger clipping my carcass into his harness to rappel off the wall. They carried me out to the meadow and I left in a helicopter. I'm sure the view was nice, but I couldn't really enjoy it. My eyes were incapable of focusing any further than maybe six inches in front of my face. That was kind of scary. Suddenly I'm deaf in my left ear. I don't have any equilibrium in the world. It feels swimmy. And I can't see. And I didn't know how long it would take. Or if. And if that would recover. Maybe this was it. The big one. That one you're afraid of. It'll fuck you up for life. After about 24 hours, I noticed my vision was coming back. But every time I'd try to sleep, when I closed my eyes, it was like getting tossed into a Home Depot paint shaker. Mm. So I'd close my eyes, wait for it to go shaky, open them again, close them, wait for the shakes, and open it again. And I'd repeat that, just like I'd repeat a move for one of my solos, until the world stabilized when I closed my eyes, and I was able to rest. I was in that hospital for eight days. They were waiting for my sodium levels to recover. The force of the impact had rendered me deaf in my left ear, and it also caused me to have a lot of cerebellar swelling. The cerebellum is also what's affected whenever you get a hangover. That's why you're stumbly the next day. So I'd wake up every morning with a raging hangover and try to drink water, but when I'd drink water, it would throw off my sodium balance, and they were afraid I'd get seizures. 
So they restricted my water intake, and I just had to put up with it. <sighs> that sucked. Anyway, I was in a neck brace because I'd fractured five vertebrae there. After I left the hospital, I realized that I'd broken something in my right shoulder. But while I was in there, I was so doped up I couldn't fucking tell. <laughs> they had me on that good shit. And it still hurt. A lot. They told me I would never climb again. And it would be a long time before I walked. With difficulty. I goddamn near walked out that hospital I was so fucking pissed off after eight days. They had to wrestle me into a wheelchair because apparently that's protocol or something. I was walking laps around the hospital ward before they got me a walker to assist me because I was recovering faster than they had any appreciation for. I don't think they understood exactly the level of pissed off and stubborn that they were dealing with. Those two things in combination can really get you somewhere when you're in a tight spot. Either one by itself, though, can really get you into a pickle. <laughs> so from there, I escaped the ward and started recovering properly. I went back to work, went back to traveling as soon as I was able to drive again, and then... Maybe six months later, well, prior to that, 28 days after the impact, I was back in the climbing gym, fucking terrified, on five, six top ropes. But I was doing it. If I had gotten caught up on notions of how I was supposed to be climbing, or who I used to be, I couldn't fucking handle it. I couldn't see the way back to where I was. And really, you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. So I let go of everything I'd done before that day. That guy was dead. We're starting over with a new guy. Recovery from injury? That's just training. But you're starting from a new baseline. So I trained, walking laps around the house, up and down the stairs, reprogramming my balance. Then I got to the climbing gym, and boy did that help my balance. You've got three sources of input for balance. There's your natural sense of equilibrium, which had gone kaplooey on me. Then there's tactile response, the feeling through your hands and feet telling you which way old man gravity is tugging. And then, there's decades of experience staring around you and knowing how things orient up and down. Visual input. So, when I got back on the wall, all of a sudden, my hands and my feet were both connected to gravity. Meanwhile, I was spinning my head around so those two things combined, the added instability of my head looking for hand and footholds, with the added stability of my hands and feet anchored to the wall, 
That helped me reprogram faster than anything else could. And six months later, I was starting to project 512 outside. And a full year later is when I free soloed my first 512s. There's no substitute for drive, grit, and determination. And boy, was I determined to make something out of myself. I wasn't determined to get back where I was. I was determined to get back on the rock and take it as far as I could, however far that was. And that, ultimately, is what brought me to where I am today. That drive has never stopped. And it never will. to soloing once I'd solify the 11 grade that was uh that was the point where I was like soloing I'm going to focus on that that's what I meant by taking this gift and nurturing it um from there 512 was a head trip I'd stalled out and piddled around after hitting 511 maybe trying to stall the inevitable after all having sent upper 511 and on sighting lower 511 512 minus was the next step. Even now, I'm trembling just thinking about it. Retelling the story pulls me back into that headspace, wondering, is this even possible? And wondering, who the fuck do you think you are? That sort of thing, in my belief and experience, was for guys named Backer Reardon. Potter, and Honnold. But me? I'm just some random nobody asshole. Random nobody assholes don't get to do the same shit as their heroes, right? I rehearsed satisfaction ten times before I admitted that it would go. I rehearsed first offense, the upper deck pitch above, maybe eight times. On one particular weekend with Lohan at Little River Canyon, he introduced me to Boy and the Lion at 512B. They're side by side in a cave. They were my 11th and 12th attempt at 512 that day. Lohan goes hard. And he didn't let me stop. <laughs> I was tanked before I even hopped on the roots, but I figured out all the moves, and I made them feel easy. The cumulative fatigue wouldn't let me actually send them. But I knew if I came back fresh, they'd feel piss easy. I never actually sent them that day, but I sent the cruxes, and I could tell how casual they'd feel if I hadn't beaten my body into a pulp while trying them. After months of preparation on the weekend of the sins, I came to Little River Canyon first, 
I warmed up on an adjacent wall and then fired off Rumble in the Jungle 512C. Rumble links the low crux of the lion into the high crux of boy. So it linked together the hardest parts of both roots I wanted to solo. After that, I knew I was golden. It felt, well, it felt warm-up level. I soloed both roots, and that was the first time I ever sent them individually. The traverse to the adjacent wall and down climb were entirely on-site. I'd eyeballed them and just knew they would go. The next day, I went to Foster Falls and soloed Satisfaction and First Offense. Then all was quiet for a year. No more 512s until I on-sighted Dalai Lama with a rope. If I can on-sight something, that means I was either climbing the route like a trash can, or spending so much time thinking that I burned my ass out. So, if I just unfuck myself, do the moves right, and ditch the effort of making safety, that gives me safety margin, physical safety margin, above what's required to actually send the route. So I returned to solo the line about a month or two later. Better than half a year, hence, I got a job in Chicago and had to leave town. But I wanted to have a parting shot before I left. Some kind of grand huzzah finale. And I knew that I was in absurd fitness, so I laid the plans for something special. And five days before leaving town, I on-site soloed a 512A called Tangerine. In the year following that day, I only soloed a single 12A during a trip to Arkansas, which brought me up to a lifetime total of seven routes. Maybe 15 lamps, though, spread across them. I'd often solo satisfaction as my warm-up during the approach to Foster Falls. It's blocky 5-9 to blocky 5-10 to a handful of pumpy 5-11 moves with a V3 crux. So it kind of warmed you up on the way up. Then this past fall, a little over a year past Tangerine, I soloed eight different 5-12s including a repeat of Satisfaction, that old favorite, bringing me up to nine laps on that route alone. I doubled my total repertoire of 512, bringing me up to 14. One incremental step after another, that's all it was. After each step, I'd say, what's the next obvious goal? Whatever you do, once you start, all it takes is time, and we've got plenty of that, because life is as long as it is short, so you better make it fucking count.
All right, and we're going to close it out with our typical reminder that uh, life is an inherently dangerous sport. So try to be safe out there. But if you can't be safe because you're overcome with the sort of madness that's inspired from watching far too many Alex Honnold videos, be careful. And just in case you thought this had anything to do with big climbing, nah, this couldn't be any farther away from the sponsored Instagram promoter climbing magazine glamour shot big climbing media. No, you could you could be doing your first thousand foot multi-pitch thinking it's only 5'8". Only. Only. That word's getting you into trouble. You could be out there onlying your way into a problem and coming back to the car in the dark only to give up entirely. There's no way we're going to make it back. And then, in lone desperation, you put the key fob above your head and click the button. Boop weep. The car's only 30 feet from you. You almost bivvied. 30 feet away from your car. And you still wouldn't be as far away from big climbing as this is.